Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I am Ron. And this is our review of Revenge of the Ninja, starring Sho Kasugi, Keith Vitale, Virgil Fry, Arthur Roberts, Mar- Mario Gallo, Grace Oshita, Ashley Ferrar, and Kane Kasugi. Directed by Sam Furstenberg of American Ninja fame, though I think those came after this. Released in 1983, check this out, Ron, $700,000 on the budget. Grossed over $13 million to the American box office. That doesn't even count the home video market. This thing was and, huge. And this thing was huge on home video because I remember this box everywhere. Oh, it's a, the, the art it's a, on it is amazing. So. Yeah, it's, it's a, I would like it as a poster uh, for my house. Yeah, you know what? If we can't get a poster of this, like that, I'm sure you can probably still find one somewhere out there in trading circles. But I haven't looked on eBay yet. But sequel in name only, though, right? We kind of teased that last time with Enter the Ninja. That the only thing coming back here is Golan Globus and Shokasugi. And, uh, you know, Minahelm Golan didn't even come back as director. I think he realized there was a it was a lot less work to just uh, write checks in Los Angeles than to actually go on location and direct. Well, and a lot of this one wasn't even shot in L.A., right? Like some of it was done in Salt Lake City. Some of it was done illegally in Los Angeles. I assume it was done illegally in Los Angeles. I can't tell you that for sure. Let's not get into the uh, casual libel cast. Exactly. But... Uh, you know, again, sequel and name only, but cashing in on the ninja craze that they helped start. Golden Globus in 1983 was on the cusp of, like, becoming... This was when before Canon Films hit the heydays. Like, between 1984 and 1989, we're talking about a studio that released 20 to 30 to sometimes 40 films a year. So this is before they did that. They did, like, 17 this year, which is still a lot. Yeah, but uh, for, for Canon, that's that's kind of uh, taking it easy. Yeah, really. Which is... Which is crazy when you think about it. Yeah, and it's a year before Chuck Norris becomes their big bankable star, too, because it's before they started doing Death Witch movies and all that stuff, too. But that, uh, largely because they got to do that, though, because this movie made $13 million friggin' dollars. I mean, I can imagine audiences in 1983 going to see this, and if they had any of the reaction that I did after it was overrun, like, I, I had never seen this before. I'll just put it out there now. And I'm the newbie on this series. Put it in, and I thought, man, Ron did not tell me we were going to get some serious freaking violence in this movie. But man, I love it. Like you waste no time whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's a straight up murder festival from the very beginning. Yeah, and uh, it, it, it's it is. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. I think you can tell from the tone of my voice how much I enjoyed myself and how much I loved this movie. Well, I mean, thinking about it, too, it's like it, it entered the ninja started with all the fake ninja murder. But this time it starts with actual murder with ninjas. It's, like, it's the same stuff. Again, just a different setting. But this time, though, we have a much more interesting star. And we'll get into Shokasugi here in a bit. But I think, you know, a lot of our audience probably hasn't seen this, though. And maybe they've gone to YouTube to watch it or whatever. But if you haven't, Ron, tell folks what the plot of Revenge of the Ninja is. I'd love to. 
in a bloody daylight attack, Cho's entire family is slaughtered on their ancestral estate by ninjas. Cho kills the half-dozen black-clad assassins, saving the life of his mother and infant son, but the ninjas will come again. Despite his mother's warnings that trouble will follow him wherever he goes, Cho moves to Los Angeles and starts up a gallery specializing in Japanese art, specifically cool-looking little ninja dolls and stuff. Proving that you need to always listen to your mother, trouble follows him. Cho's business partner, Braden, is using the art studio as a front for smuggling in heroin via Japan. Of course. And, and Braden has run afoul of the mafia because you can't have a movie with any kind of dolls where they're not chock full of drugs. On one side, mafia thugs. On the other side, a silver-masked white ninja. Caught in the middle, Cho and his six-year-old son, Kane. Cho and police officer friend Dave go to see Lieutenant Dime, but Cho's reluctant to get involved in the case of the ninja killings until his son is kidnapped by Braden's thugs. His son missing, his love interest Kathy hypnotized, his mother killed in a previously mentioned ninja invasion, Cho breaks a solemn vow of nonviolence, puts on his white assortment of murder gear, and breaks into the mafia building to stop Braden and rescue his son and girlfriend. A dozen mafia thugs die, Dave gets into a solid fight with the silver mask only to be beaten and killed. And then after Dave is disposed of Braden wipes out the entire mafia, <laughs> but there's just one loose end. Cho Cho and his nemesis finally square off in a dramatic rooftop battle with lots of flying and lots of explosions. After a ridiculously long fight, Cho beats Braden and is reunited with his love interest and son as credits roll. And that all happens, folks, in the span of less than an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> like, this movie is out of a cannon, uh, um, pun intended, and wastes no time <laughs> getting into the. No, really. Like, I was, I saw the runtime when I fired this up, and I was like, uh, that's never a good sign, right? And then I realized, I was like, no, what Golan Globus realized quickly was, we just got to get to the ninja murder quick and, you know, story be darned. Let's just make this simple. It's all about, you know, the title says it all. It's Revenge of the Ninja. You have a ninja who gives up ninjing to go sell out in America, even though his mother tells him it's going to go bad. And when it goes bad, he says, screw it, and goes back to ninjing and kills everybody. That's that's really the through line of the whole film. Oh, there's also some mafia and some white people with drugs, but, you know, that's just the American part. Well, you need disposable thugs, yes. and you need plenty of them. And you, you know, you can only take the um, murdering the village people in a playground so far. Right, right. I mean, yeah, we can't get into too much of this. The opening of this, though, is what is amazing because we are in uh, what looks like Mr. Miyagi's house from Karate Kid, and I'm not certain that it wasn't the same set in Southern California somewhere. That they they come up with. This, you know, there's, there's show and all of his sons. I keep screwing that up to forever. I thought, did they just call him show just to make it easy on him? But it's actually Joe. Um, right? Cause Kathy's the one that screws it up several times. He's got like, his whole she family does. around. Yeah. He's got his whole family around. Right. And, and all this stuff. And there's a baby and there's lots of, you know, women in traditional Japanese, you know, garb and stuff. And then these ninjas come out and just start killing everybody. Like, for reasons. And what I wanted to ask you is his friend Braden is trying to talk to him about come to America, Oriental Arts huge, you'll be massive there. And he's like, nah, I can't really give up the homeland, you know, all this stuff. And then all the ninjas beset. And my question to you was, did Braden set these ninjas up or was this just 
natural ninja on ninja violence here? I don't know. I think it it seems like the kind of thing that's happened several times. It just <laughs> seems like it just seems like this was the most effective outbreak of ninja violence. Yeah, it is like he lives in a gang place or something like that, and then this is just him, to, you know, uh, finally moving his, his folks out of the hood or whatever. It's yeah, kind of what I got from it. Yeah, he's moving out of uh, south-central Osaka and heading <laughs> to uh, the relatively safe streets of Compton. Yeah, and it's definitely like a, an industrial area where Golden Globus could could shoot without worrying too much about the cops rolling around. Do you want to know where I thought? I was like, if this city had a place like in movie world or whatever, this is the daytime version of where all the freaking Saw movies happen. You know, this abandoned industrial place where there's a lot of gang violence and where a lot of murder can happen and nobody will know. It's just the daytime version versus the mostly nighttime Saw version. That's what I thought. I don't, I don't know if they deliberately picked the only dirty part of Salt Lake City to film those external shots or if this is some of that stuff they filmed quasi-legally. I think it's a little bit of both, and I think even while they were in Salt Lake City, they were probably like popping up out of the back with cameras. They probably were rolling past the Troll 2 crew you know, while they shot this thing. Uh, for all we know but no it, it it's very quick though we get in and we get a lot of ninja murder and that's the first thing i noticed is not only do we get crazy ninja violence which i'm really liking but we get a lot more fake blood like there you know this this had half the budget of the last movie but there's a lot more spent on the effects yeah i think they uh were able to uh negotiate a pretty sweetheart deal with uh the Utah State Film Commission for this one. I think they got a lot of tax credits for this, and they decided that the best way to sell a movie internationally is to have as little talking as possible and as much blood as you could squeeze out of a tube. Exactly, and and all of it overdubbed, as it were. But we bring back Shokasugi, who both of us really liked in the last movie, Enter the Ninja, who was... I mean, he was the bad guy. He really wasn't even the bad guy. He was just the nemesis ninja who showed up to do a job at the end. And then even at the end, it wasn't personal between him and the uh, the other ninja. It was all business. So we both really liked him. Now you make him the lead of the film. And I got to tell you, I think that's a smart move. I, I really do. Well, he's a like he's a native English speaker. So, I mean, it's it's net. It's a great idea to make him the lead. He's the most impressive martial artist. He can do it without like a mask on. Um, I mean, he's he's not a native English speaker, but like he he'd been in America for decades at this point. Like he came to America when he was 19 and he got a bachelor's degree in, in economics. And then he decided to start doing martial arts and teaching martial arts and stuff. So he's definitely like a great. Like, he's the kind of guy that I think they really messed up by not putting him in a movie with Chuck Norris, but Chuck Norris probably also didn't want to look bad. It's, yeah, I am about to say, he would have made Chuck look bad. So as cool as Chuck is, and for all the memes that are of Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris actually would get his ass kicked by a guy like this. Like, let's just say it. Like, this guy could, could karate circles around him. And the other genius part here is they cast his little kid, his son, to play his six-year-old son that he rescues like Moses out of the bush at the end of the massacre at the beginning, <laughs> you know, with grandmother in, in tow, right? And But his little his little boy, like, they just give him the name Kane because that's his real name because so that's probably what he would respond to on set or whatever. But I love he is, Yeah. He is super young. Yes, he is. He's like five or something. He's supposed to be like six, but he's a little, little kid. But he kicks just like his dad and i'm like i love this though because now you have like mini me ninja 
And this, there's this whole thing at the beginning about how he's tied his sword together. He's not going to fight anymore. We only do this anymore because it's their way of like remembering their history and religion and stuff like that. But his son like kicks the crap out of some bullies on the way home from school. And grandma's like, go, go do it. Yeah, like six bullies. And grandma is all about it. Oh, yeah. I think, I, and, I th- and I think that's because... Uh, she who least likes the idea of moving to America, and she's the one who both wants to hold on to the family tradition of putting on black and murdering people. I mean, really, though, this little kid, though, is just as impressive as his dad. I was blown away by watching this little kid, like, do the ninja stuff in real time. I mean, he is high yaw and kicking butt, and I, I don't know, I... I really got a kick out of watching it, though, because most of the time you do a kid in these movies, right, and it's a foil, right? It's like, uh, another kid to be in distress. But in the end, I mean, he turns out to be useful. He gets him and Kathy out of trouble. He beats up some other guys. I mean, if he was just a little bit taller, he'd be even as ferocious as his dad. Like, he holds his own in, like, a couple of different fight scenes. Like, he... He beats the crap out of a giant uh, bodyguard type guy. Yeah. Uh, he, he has a really good fight scene with uh, Kathy, uh, played by that Ashley Ferrara. Yeah. Who who I think must have some kind of um, martial arts background because she is pretty good at it as well. Yeah, I was going to say, like, everybody here seems like they've got some background, at least some training. Even the guy that plays Braden. You know, uh, Arthur Roberts seems to be able to hold himself together when he has to be Silver Face Ninja. You know, the, yeah. and honestly, they don't ask him to do a whole lot, but he looks better than Franco Nero did in his fake ninja part. Yeah, and uh, I'm Dave Keith Vitale is a champion, is a karate champion, like a full contact fighter champion. See, that's awesome. Also, another actor and. Um, uh, stunt choreographer and stuff like he was like uh he was like for he spent like 10 years as like a legit fighter and was like put in black belt magazines hall of fame and was the number one karate champion in the usa and and you know see that that lets me know that golden globus learned something from their last time is you can't just have people that look good you gotta have people that can actually do the stuff and who cares if they can act because nobody's there to watch them have a great love story or anything like that or to have you know all these these twisted emotions it's pretty simple what's gonna happen you come after this guy's family and he's gonna take up the ninja again and that's exactly what happens here and, and they wisely pick up with that and and move on from that quickly. Like they don't they don't belabor the point is what I'm trying to say. And they cast this thing with such uh, good martial artists that every time there's karate, there's, there's karate stuff every five minutes, and it's always fun. Yeah, and uh, to further um, support Keith Vitale's bona fides, the year after this, he goes to Hong Kong and he makes uh, Wheels on Meals with Jackie Chan. No way. See, there were yep. parts of this movie where I felt like I was watching a Jackie Chan movie. Like, there's some things that Shokasugi does here that I'm like, man, that's Jackie Chan. Yeah, he, and he's very much he's very much got that kind of Jackie Chan charm to him. Uh, shows like a lot more serious mm-hmm. than Jackie, but there is some legitimately funny stuff in some of these fights. Like the the entire setup of them fighting on a playground is hilarious. 
Oh no, that's that's awesome! Like you can't get any cooler and more fun than that. So I, that was a blast. Uh, the the short, all the short range, like close range fighting that they do here too. That's the other thing. The other movie, it was always like open arenas and parking lots where they were fighting. Right this time, it's all enclosed. And Sam Furstenberg, for all of his faults as a director, can shoot action. And he's this is some of the best stuff he does. Like. I realize now everything cool that that I may have liked about American Ninja, he learned doing here. And I want to know why was Shokasugi not involved in American Ninja at some point? Besides not being, you know, completely American, but I mean, for all the people we put up next to Dudikov. I I have no idea. That's actually, I think what they were trying to do was to try to have each star have their own series and keep them apart from each other. I guess so, yeah, because they do have a lot of ninja franchises. We're only scratching the surface here of what they've and I, and I think if you And I think if you crossed Chuck Norris and Shokasugi, or uh, Sho and Dudikoff, or Chuck and Dudikoff, you would get a lot of audience confusion, because mm-hmm. these aren't the kind of movies where, you know, people are, uh, well, let's just say... Most people aren't completists, and most <laughs> no. people aren't gonna aren't gonna watch them in order, unlike us. Yeah, these were the kind of movies that were designed. It's Friday night. You're at uh, you're at Roadrunner Video because this is before Blockbuster was a thing. <laughs> if you remember Roadrunner Video yes. or Red Giraffe Video, yes, or like the local mom and pop. Uh, video store slash tanning salon. Yeah, that was that was a uh, Hills Video uh, slash tax service in Florence. Yeah, a buddy of mine, his parents owned a video store slash tanning salon slash laundromat in, like, <laughs> middle of nowhere, like, Look, Kentucky. you, you got to diversify, you know? <laughs> and and even uh, Cho here, like, he has a gallery that goes from art to dolls to more art to other stuff. I mean, you know, there's lots and, of and stuff he's, going on. And he's running a martial arts school on the side. Exactly, right? He's he's training Kathy on the side, which I love that opening scene with her. Talk about like laying the seduction on heavy. She's like he's like, You forgot your pants. She was like, Did I? <laughs> I was like, Oh man, this guy can't see like he he is refusing the advances and this woman is all over him. Yeah, and I mean I is isn't the a, a big breasted blonde woman like the American dream? I thought it was for every in, Japanese guy. I mean, that was what we were told in the eighties, at least, right? Maybe yeah, in like in that. like in like nineteen eighty three. Does it get better for a, a, an immigrant in America? <laughs> I mean, really, I and mean, she's like the perfect blonde too. She's fake blonde. Like you can see the roots, and you don't care. <laughs> you know, <'cause laughs> she's got she's got great legs. You know, she's she can fight. She's smart too. She's also susceptible to uh, suggestion, as we'll learn later, because she can be hypnotized. Yeah, easily hypnotized. I mean, it's the American dream. Like it's <laughs> no, it really, life, li- life, life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of hypnotizing women into kidnapping children for you. I mean, really, like that's what happens too. So, but she's involved in this. But it's all really the whole thing here is that it, it's a scheme by his friend Braden here, right? Who is He's running drugs on his own, right? But yes, yeah, he's he, using Cho as like an unwitting front. That's it. So he's running drugs on his own, but he gets involved with the mob because he needs better funding, or they're like getting ticked that he's in their territory. Which one is it? I didn't really understand. I, I think the deal was that uh, he was the middleman between uh, the Japanese heroin dealers and the mafia. Oh, got it. Okay, and he had arranged a deal. 
uh, for, I don't know, like $300,000 worth of, uh, it was like $300,000 or something or three hundred three million dollars or there was some kind of there was a three amount in there. Yeah. Yeah. For, uh, the heroin. But then the mob guy's like, I'm not going to pay this guy. Let's just steal it. And then, so they go to, uh, uh, steal it. Cause they can't like work out a number. The, the mafia doesn't like the number that they previously agreed upon and attempted to uh, alter the deal Darth Vader style, but they didn't realize they were messing with a ninja. Right, exactly. So so Braden goes undercover as Black Ninja with a silver face, the ma- the face mask, and starts killing people. Meanwhile, while they rip off Cho's place, he goes after them in what has to be one of the best chase scenes ever, and also the most realistic amount of damage that a human being would take if you chased after people in a moving car. I mean, his legs get skinned up, his shoes are shot. I I actually appreciated the realism of that, because what always happens is, you know, Mel Gibson jumps on top of the car and swings around a little bit, and then he jumps off and he runs and he empties his clip and he looks like he's just a little bit dirty. This guy looks like he's been drugged down the road at high speeds because that's what happened. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things you see a lot in this movie. Whoever is uh, keeping track of the like whoever the script supervisor is for injuries. Yeah, the continuity doing, person. Yeah. Yeah, the the continuity. Uh, yeah, the the script continuity person does a great job keeping track of who's injured when and how, because unlike a lot of these movies, you don't see a lot of disappearing and reappearing cuts and blood and stuff. It all seems to be fairly consistent. Yeah. Which is, uh, considering that last fight took him two weeks to film, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that yeah, that's the other thing, too, is lest you think like that they just rushed this together, they actually spent time shooting this thing. I mean, it, it's amazing how, how much time they spent on it. Yeah, definitely. It's... And that's the thing. You would think that for canon, they would shoot it in like a month and be done. But they, they they took their time and they got some great results for it, I think. Oh, absolutely. They, they got incredible results for it. And I think that's it shows on the screen. You can tell like that this this somebody took their time with this movie to make it work. And but getting back into the story here or whatever, the. I love the mafioso boss because I was taken back to, of all things, the Cannonball Run movies and the fake mafia that are in that movie, if you remember that, who are played by guys that are known for playing mafia people or whatever. I I really felt like I was watching the same group of actors again. I even had to look it up. I'm like, were these people in Cannonball? But no, they weren't. It's, It's a different group of folks. But it's the same kind of feel, at least. To me, it was. Yeah, he reminded me uh, of the grimy like mobsters in the MST3K classic Mitchell. Oh, I don't know that one. Okay. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it's another, uh, it's another, uh, very stereotypical, uh, mafia guys, uh, lots of crazy curly perms and, you know, it's, it's a very 1975 Joe Don Baker movie. Oh, there we go. Well, see, yeah, I actually thought a little bit about like the Joe Don Baker style of, a film that that's who these people would be. So, but uh, even, nonetheless, I, I do like our fake mafia here. I, I find them quite fun because they're they're really sort of the secondary bad guy to this. And that's what I wanted to ask you: is are they the real bad guys, or is Braden the real bad guy? Because I kind of felt like they were the secondary. Yeah, well, I I, th- I agree with you. I think that they are the secondary bad guys because at no point does the mafia kidnap a child or <laughs> yeah. uh, have a woman 
possibly raped or burned to death in a steam room. That's also a very saw thing to do. Just just to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe as we Brady see, was like, Jigsaw's brother. And as we well, that would explain the the creepy mask. It really would. <laughs> and as we see in like the the mafia thing, like uh, Cafano is there with like. Isn't it his mom and his wife that he's protecting with yep. the before yep. Braden shows up and murders yeah. everyone? Mm-hmm. But which we gotta say, Grandma gets some licks in too. She wasn't a joke, man. Like I like the fact that Grandma could kick it just like they could. Yeah, that uh, the fight scene between Grandma and uh, Braden was what um, was uh, Grace Oshida and Braden was actually a lot of fun. I don't know if she has any kind of martial arts background or if they just found good, you know, I, stunt people to dress in drag. But I don't know, it, man. It's hard to find a stunt person that can be like short and round like she was. Like she is not. She doesn't look, you know, remotely athletic at all. But she takes the stance. She does a couple of kicks. But her big thing was like leg sweeps and hand movements. And so I thought, well, maybe that was just really her, just doing what she knew how to do. Uh, I kind of liked it. I don't know. Again, I, I thought it was it was fun. I mean, it, it made the whole thing more fun because at some one point I thought she might live, but the fact that she dies is just another reason to push Cho over the limit. Yeah, and she was. I just looked up her obituary. Uh, R.I.P. In peace, uh, Grace. So she did. She lived to this year, uh, so she was ninety two years old when she died. Wow. And she, uh, like Pat Morita, she grew up in an internment camp. Oh wow. So in, she, yeah, there we go. Well, they moved her. Uh, she was born in San Francisco, and her internment camp was in Utah. And she stayed, and her family stayed in Salt Lake City after the war, and started a company making like miso. <laughs> I guess and so. She, yeah. Well, she she played uh, traditional Japanese instruments. She mm-hmm. sang. She did origami. She uh, was essentially like a one woman Japanese embassy. In the Salt heart of Mormon, in the heart of Mormon country, yeah. <laughs> well, again, I could see the appeal. Like, you've got to find a niche market to survive in, man. So, yeah, why not? Uh, yeah, that, so it, it yeah. makes sense that she would know like some some like Tai Chi, and that would that would be a lot of like the hand movements and the sweeps and the, and the, that kind of stuff. Would that's where all that kind of stuff would come into play? Yeah, absolutely. And plus, it almost looked like to me like. Have you ever seen like the traditional like geisha dancing? Yes, yes. Movies? Very it was kind of like that. Yeah. yeah well, I think back to Karate Kid too, and the the Okinawa girl that Danielson falls for, or whatever. Like she does a lot of dancing, and it felt a lot like that. I was like, it, it, that's what it reminded me of. And that you know, this was what two years before the first one, so or at least a year before the first one. So I'm thinking ahead, but yeah, it's like they. And again, you've got somebody who understands the culture. I'm sure they were like, just do some, I don't know, Japanese woman stuff. <laughs> and she's like, okay. You know, no, I, I guarantee you she and and, uh, and Shokasuge worked all that out because he was the fight choreographer. Oh, see, now that makes even more sense. And again, smart move by Golden Globus. You hire the guy to be the actor and you also let him do all the stuff. It's like if Ray Park could actually, actually act, <laughs> they would have let him do the voice of... Uh, Darth Maul too. Exactly, and if, for all I know, he was also the guy under the uh, silver ninja mask as well. For... True, yeah. I mean, there are times when I'm like, mm, did the ninja lose a little bit of weight? And I'm like, no, that's probably just when they pulled uh, the white guy out and put Kasugi in as, as his own stunt guy. 
which you know it's a nice work if you can get it and it and it's and it was a lot of it, it worked really well uh, i the that the mask was so disturbing was a great touch and that it, is, talk about that mask for a minute man that is a weird look i mean it's i i don't know how to describe it for people if you haven't seen it like it's it's a I mean, it's striking the the way that that mask comes off. Yeah, and it's like a weird grimace. Yeah, yeah, it's like the mask is angry at something, and it won't tell you what, but it's pissed, and it's coming for some. I mean, it's mad. Yeah, it, it very much looks like a, 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 like, what is it, no, like a no theater mask? Yeah, there you go, yeah, yeah. I, you know what? You know what I thought back to? I thought back to Scream 2 earlier this year, and the, the masks and the... Uh, um, Oh, what was the Argamemnon or whatever that we were that uh, uh, what's her name was in in college? Scream too. It felt like it was those masks. And apparently, this mask has a name, and uh, it has been dubbed at least on the internet uh, as the Chrome Demon. The Chrome Demon. I kind of like that. Though. That that works. I mean, they could have made a whole series out of Chrome Demon people. Um, yeah, and it's like a Japanese like demon face mask. So it's it's another little who would Golden Globus like drop the ball and let them do research for this movie. And I, I know well, I mean, think about it, man. When you you look at this film, it was written by a guy named James Silky. Do you know him at all? Uh, I do not. I don't either, but apparently he's one of like Golan Globus's go-tos or something. And he and Shokasugi really worked most of this out is what I read on the internet. Is that you can thank Shokasugi and this guy for any of the quote realism that you may enjoy in this film because they're the ones that really infused it. Because Golan and Globus were just writing checks and Furstenberg was just there to make the camera work well. And good on him for getting out of the way of such a good artist. Yeah, and it, it's it's super entertaining too, um, and I think that helps it be uh, a lot more consistent than um, uh, Enter the Ninja. That's the thing is, Enter the Ninja had moments where it would just derail into like silliness, you know, or or campiness, right? And th- mm-hmm. you can have some of that in your movie, right? But if you have too much of it, it starts to really chip at any sort of credibility that you may hold. And this movie never does that. Part of it is because it's 10 and a half minutes, you know, it's 15 minutes shorter than the last one. So that was smart. But the other part of it, I think is too, is that the people involved in making this, the director and the writer and the star aren't going to let it careen into ridiculousness. Yeah. It's, it's definitely got more of a, like the fights especially have more of a movie feel, Mm. but I think that's also, it can be, uh, you can also put that down to the fact that they've got actual stuntmen and, and fighters and, and people with training and not just, you know, uh, random Filipino uh, day day laborers like they had on uh, the previous film. I think like the crew that built any sets they had were also the thugs that the guy kept trying to hire last time. I mean, I really would believe that they would overuse people like that. You're right. This time, it's it may be the same people over and over from scene to scene, but look, James Cameron made that work in Aliens. It's the same four performers all day. You know, it just, because of the way it's shot, you think there's 100,000 aliens, and you feel like that about these ninjas, that there's 100,000 ninjas. And there's, there's, of course, tons of mafia fodder, because all you have to do is have somebody with dark hair and a bad suit. And you've got Mafia henchman number four. 
Right, yeah, you could definitely uh, fill it, round out the cast with uh, goons. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of goons, there's plenty of guns. But what I like is how, again, Shokusugi cuts through these guys, and when he kills them, it doesn't take him long. It's not like this prolonged, you know, ridiculous fight. You know, he gets a hold of a blade, and you're done in just a few minutes. Like, he has no, he wastes no time breaking necks and moving people around, and I like that. I appreciated the fact that, again, they stuck to that motif that they built from last time, which was that once a ninja gets involved, it ain't going to last long. Yeah, and the fights where it does last long are the ones where where Cho is trying not to kill everyone. Right, because he's, he's trying like, to get uh, information. Like, he's, yeah, because he's uh, trying to stop the thugs who are robbing his, his store, uh, his gallery. He's trying to get information out of the guys at the playground. You know, he's not just running around killing everyone because he's trying to track down where his son is. The moments of, of comedy in this, I feel like, come unintentionally, as it almost always would in a film like this, but really in this film they do, because you've got uh, poor Kathy gets hypnotized by Braden to kidnap Kane at some point, right? And I love, like, I love Hollywood hypnosis, right? I don't know if you've ever studied hypnosis or anything, Ron. It takes a lot to actually hypnotize somebody. Like, you have to find people that are either really, really good at it or people that are really open to that suggestion. It's not as easy as just the watch in front of you and then all of a sudden you're gone. But is it as easy as glowing magic ninja eyes? Well, you know what? Like, I felt like I was watching something from an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the third (laughs) season where Giles has to, like, put her through all these tests and stuff and he uses, like, some glow rocks to... uh, hypnotize her. I was like, oh, it's like the Buffy trial. So, you know, and I'm like, well, you know what, Joss Whedon probably watched this movie so and I, would, would be aware of it. So I, I, or his writing team most assuredly did. So I'm sure that's where a lot of this came from. I think anybody who had HBO in 19, you know, 84 through 1997 knows this movie very well. See, and that's the funny thing is I think this was part of the time we had HBO and I just missed this one. Again, I missed the whole ninja craze. I think I was like doing the Star Wars and Back in the Future and stuff and I just missed all of the good action films that uh, Canon was into. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I love Star Wars and I, and I still do, but uh, I also managed to catch, you know, every movie that had ninja or kickboxer or uh, blood, blood sport in the title. Now, see, I didn't see like blood sport and kickboxer until much later, but I, I got into the Van Damme craze like halfway into it, I think. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I understand. So, it's just one of those things that like I just didn't do ninja movies growing up for no reason. Like, I had no reason not to. I just never watched them. But, uh, gosh, boy, did I miss a lot of good ones. That's <laughs> what I, mean, so I realize now. I'm like, crap, man, I missed all the really, you know, fun stuff. Because this movie is amazing. Like, I know we're sitting here a few Usually praising this, and people are going, aren't these the guys that like you know really nitpick your Kubrick films and stuff? Yeah, well, that's us too. All right, but really, like I can watch this, and I'm I'm going, man. There's so much more here that I I feel like I'm not even getting to yet because this movie is so lean. Like, and I want to ask you, do you think it's too short? Because I've praised it for being short, but I want to know, do you think it's too short? No, I think it's great because it's a burst of just raw adrenaline. Like there is, there's never a moment in this movie where nothing is happening. There's always something crazy going on. 
it may be the fact that they, uh, you know, Cho has a foreplay fight with the blonde. <laughs> or it may be the fact that we get like a legitimate five minute fight scene between a grandmother and a ninja or another legitimate and really good fight scene between a five-year-old and said uh, blonde girlfriend. Yes. And I also like, and I also like the fact that every time they have to like stop and do something plot related, they try to do it in a fight. Like the whole scene where Cho is making for uh, Cho, where we meet Dave for the first time, it's him and Cho and they're fighting each other, but they're also like (laughs) discussing uh, the plot and the, the ninja murders. Yeah, look, it's a way to move exposition along very quickly. You know, Aaron Sorkin did the walk and talk. Well, this is the chop and talk. You know, it's, I mean, you just do exposition through action. We haven't talked about Dave yet. What did you make of, of good friend Dave here? I uh, I figured he would die. Um, I mean, he's cannon fodder. We know that, right? Because he's a good martial artist, so he's obviously playing like several other roles too. But yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's the other. The other is you got to kill him. He can't be around while he's got to be six other people. So he might actually be under the uh, silver ninja mask. Yeah, now that we think about it, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure who is under that mask, and the internet is not particularly helpful. Uh, surprise, I mean, surprise! Imagine that. <laughs> But no, I like the Dave character because I think, again, you've got to have someone else for Cho to lose. He can't lose his son. He's lost everybody else. You're not going to kill the little kid. We, yeah, he's we, already though, lost. Though I say that, though, and we kill a kid in the opening scene with a throwing star to the face. And that's <laughs> Cho's older son. I did not realize that. Oh, wow. So Yeah, that's Cho's older son who gets the uh, throwing star to the eye like uh, Butters. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly like Butters. So, but, I mean, he even has a scene later where he talks about that's a throwing star. It's just the link to go between the eye to get into the brain. I'm like, man, this is that's morbid to know that. So, but, okay. So, I, I guess you would know that. So, I mean, he saw it happen. Exactly. But I, li- I like this, the Dave character, though, because you've got to give somebody else for Cho to lose, like we said, like that he's close to. That's just another reason for him to untie his sword. And I do like that whole bit about that he's tied his sword together. That's like the symbolic thing that he's not, you know, he's only teaching the religion and history with it. He's not going to pull it out for fighting. But once he does, it's like breaking out the lightsaber from under the dustbin or something. Yeah, once he breaks the the peace knot, as they call it in the Ren Fair game, once he breaks that peace knot, it's on. Like that's that's him breaking his solemn vow. That's him, you know, he's got nothing... He, he's he's got it's nothing but uh, he's either going to get his son back or he's going to die and right. that's there's no middle ground well it's very much like another movie that comes out years later but I, I think about Murtaugh in the first lethal weapon where he pulls the grenade out and they're like his own daughter's here he's not going to do anything he's like she's going to die she's going to die my way and I'm like I kind of feel like Joe is like I'll kill him myself before I let y'all kill him you know that, that's, and that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly what goes on here. And I, I, I love that. I love that, that scene uh, where he, he finally breaks the knot and he comes back and you know what, what happens here? I like that, that his son on the inside realizes that I got to get us out of here. Cause you know, dad's, dad's got to you know come and rescue us. So he like breaks free and him and Kathy get free together, but he's the reason she gets free. And that is another really well-done fight scene involving a child and an adult. Yeah, it's almost like he's got to hit her back into reality, right? Like when he knocks her you know, head one time, that wakes her back up. 
Yeah, and that may be a side effect of the uh, either the hair dye or the <laughs> hypnosis. <laughs> Which one? We don't know. It's not but explained. Spe- but specifically, he uh, Kane Kasuge fights in such a way that like he's not overpowering anyone, no. but he's he's using his environment like really effectively well. Like for example, he. He, there's a door between him and the big goon guarding the sauna and he kicks the door. So it smashes the guy's face, mm-hmm. which is, which is just really clever. And he keeps that door between him and that goon for as long as he can. So what you're saying is that the John Hughes ripped, ripped this off for home alone too, is what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if Kevin had any uh, <laughs> hidden uh, staffs with hidden blades inside that, that were like, Thank goodness that that kid was a murderer waiting to happen. But yeah, I mean, really though, that, I I had like a Home Alone feel with the kid. I was like, that hey, kind of reminds me of Home Alone, which I know is later, but still, I'm coming this you know after the fact. So I look at this, and I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like that. You know, it's, it's the Japanese American kid doing the Home Alone stuff to get out of trouble. But but a lot less obnoxiously. Oh, much less obnoxiously. I, I like this kid. Matter of fact, I wanted like Revenge of the Ninja 2 Cho's son. You know, I wanted that. How did that not happen? I guess he wasn't old enough and they had to crank another one out. But we'll get to Ninja I, I 3 would, some other time. I would say that's a big part of it. Uh, they had to crank another movie out. Uh, he does come back for uh, uh, Pray for Death, uh, which is a later Shokasuge movie. It's the one where I think he fights... Um, uh, is that the one where he fights Van Dam? No. I can't uh, no, that's, that's yeah. Black. E- it's Black Eagle where he fights Van Dam. Oh wow! But uh, but no, Kane Kasuga is in Black Eagle too. So he works with his dad quite a bit. They, he just misses out on the third uh, Ninja Three, um, probably because he had to go to school. Yeah, that's the other thing. He had to eventually go and uh, you know learn something else. So, uh, but again. All of this is leading up to this big final battle for Cho to go in and take out the Mafia and the Silverface Demon Ninja, who is also there to take out the Mafia. Yeah, and I don't even know if if Cho is there to kill the Mafia or if they just like keep trying to kill him because... All they see is a guy in black, and they can't tell which ninja it is they're trying to kill. I, I don't think the mafia are, dis, are discerning. I think they're just like, ninja-looking dude, shoot it. You know, that's the whole thing. Which, I mean, admittedly is not a bad life philosophy to have. I Look, if, if you are going against ninjas and you have guns, shoot. Don't let them get close. That equals death. Unfortunately, these mafia guys are useless and dumb, and that's exactly what happens, is they... They have beads on ninjas, and they're, like, lining up a better shot. <laughs> and, um, no, that's not going to end well for you, and it doesn't. A lot of throat cuts, a lot of blood. And, and some very creative use of, like, all the ninja weapons. I really mm-hmm. – one of the things I liked about this movie uh, that the other movie didn't get quite as well was that ninjas don't typically just operate with, like, visible swords. Yeah, it's always hidden. They do. It's hidden – like there was like the walking stick that uh, had the blade in one end. There was like the secret knife inside the handle of the sword. There was the uh, the collapsible uh, bow and arrow that he used to shoot the the guide wire across, so he could. Um, that was like zip, zip line. Batman or something, man. That was amazing. 
Yeah, this the uh, I've always wanted. I always enjoy like a good collapsible baton where you can just flick the thing and then it's a weapon. Yeah. Uh, so and, and that and to me that was a cool again a cool little nod to like how ninjas actually were because they weren't just dudes who dressed in black and murdered people. Right. They their whole thing was they would sneak in, sneak out, blend in among the people. Uh, you know, just look like every other, you know, dirt farming Japanese uh, guy in colonial Japan. Right. But, but even, you know, they were, they were espionage. They were spies and spy killers and stuff like that. That's what they were there for, which I, I recently rewatched Batman Begins and there's a whole ninja part of, you know, that origin story there. And the way that those guys just kind of drop out of the ceiling and here and there, I'm like, yeah, this is exactly like what's going on in this movie. It's, it's very, I guess real to what a ninja would do. You know, ninjas are going to hide in places where you don't expect them. And then all of a sudden they'll just pop out of nowhere. And by the time you see them, it's too late. That, isn't that the idea? Yeah. There was a lot of that in this movie that I really appreciated too. Oh yeah. There was a lot of roof, you know, slinging down and all of that stuff. I really enjoyed the fact that the ninjas stayed well hidden until it was time to come out. And then they did their job and they got back into hype. Except for, of course, the big fight at the end, but no. then you've got two ninjas fighting one another. Yes, which at that point, you know, that's Shadow fighting Shadow, right? Like, which I did enjoy that end fight. I mean, we talked about it. it took two weeks to shoot it. You can see it. I mean, that is a well put together, crazy fight up on that rooftop. I mean, there there are multiple sets of weapons. They keep throwing those little exploding smoke bombs. Yes. Uh, they have they literally have like multi-level fights where they start at one level and end at the other level. And it, it's uh, it is they make the most use of a rooftop I think I've ever seen. I mean, it's a great boss fight, too, you know, because when you want that final one, you want it to be something special. And it turns out to be every bit as special as, as you could want it to be. I actually liked it more than the white ninja infiltrating the rich dude's lair, you know, or, or karate place last time where he just easily took everybody out. And then uh, it was just down to him and, you know, he, he and uh, uh, Hasegawa just had that real quick fight. I, I thought this was so much more fun. It's more of what we expect from a ninja, an 80s ninja movie these days. Mm -hmm. And this was probably like the first ninja movie to give us this kind of crazy ninja on ninja fight at the end. Yeah, I can't think of another one beforehand that would have done it. But there's been a million copies since. You know, that's that's yeah, the, yeah. I mean, not only was this movie successful, was if Enter the Ninja launched the ninja craze, then this is the one that everybody wanted to copy. This was the Rocky Three that everybody wanted to be like. <laughs> yeah, this is the one that put ninjas on lunchboxes and yes. put ninjas in. It put ninjas in G.I. Joe. Exactly. Yes, this is where we got ninjas in G.I. Joe, all of that stuff. Yes, this is where it all came from. And, I, man, again, I, I had so much fun. And I love the end here, how he cuts him down. And he like basically unmasks him and, and gives him the death blow at the same move. Yeah, which that was a that was a really cool moment. And I think that it, it – and we've talked a lot about that uh, – Everybody looks more competent this time, mm -hmm. and I think it helps that you know they've got they got real martial artists. They took their time with the choreography. They they made sure that every single dollar that they spent ended up on the screen in some fashion. 
because I think the acting is better. I think you've got much better fighting. I think you've got uh, that rooftop is a is a fascinating location. I think for a fight because you see things like uh, Braden uses the air compressors for the air conditioning, which is awesome to like throw Cho off balance and Cho almost falls. And that's, that's just some cleverness that I don't think you got from a lot of movies. Uh, even in this time. Well, you didn't get it in the last movie. More, moreover, like as, as fun as that one could be at times, as much fun as we had with it, this one goes to that next level. It's like this one goes to 11. Is what I just kept writing in my notes. It's like this movie goes to 11. It's, it's that whole next level up. And, you know what? It ends on a real satisfying moment. He kills the bad guy. The girl and his son are safe. He smiles, and that's it. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a satisfying ending because it feels like it's well earned, and we think that and it kind of feels like well, Cho has has broken his word, but he's saved his family, and he's. Well, I mean, he took the vow because his family died. He broke his word to save his family again. I think that's doable. Like, I think he could get, you know, they will, they'll let him out of ninja jail for that. Yeah, and good luck trying to keep him in jail. <laughs> I was going to say, right, like, who who's going to be there to get him in jail <laughs> at this point? I, I really, I again, this was so much fun to go through and watch because this movie wastes no time. And so, but it got to that real quick ending. I want to talk real quick about the score. I didn't realize that, like, what I know as the missing in action score is pretty much the Golan Globus score. That they just use it for everything. I didn't realize they got one good, like you know, line, and they just kept going with it. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I guess if you got something that works, you just run it into the ground. I, well, you know, look, it's not. It, we've heard you know other movies reuse scores all the time. I mean, Scream Two reused some Broken Arrow. You know, I mean that if you got something that works, you just use it over and over. But uh, I was I was blown away because I was like, I know this score, and I was like, oh yeah, that's what I know as the missing in action slash. Invasion USA score, and clearly it just kept getting recycled. Uh, did you notice in the playground fight scene that he uses when he used he's fighting with those two fans yes. that the that the fan cuts the guy? Yeah, what was that made out of? Or was he just that, that fast? No, that's a legitimate ninja weapon. Oh wow! Like uh, they, it's called a Japanese war fan, and it's basically uh, it's like a. It can be a real fan that has like made of wood and stuff and has a metal cover or it could be like uh, basically there's like a metal on the outside that is tipped that would be sharpened. Oh, man. And it could it was both like, you know, uh, both used to like cool yourself off and also used to like slash. (laughs) Yeah, because. Because samurai apparently, like samurai, would take these things to places where weapons weren't allowed. Well, like where you couldn't just wear a sword. Yeah. But then you whip your fan out, and you guys get in a fan fight, and somebody dies. Well, see, the, I can totally see this because again, as a as a weapon of a an espionage group, you know, a ninja weapon totally makes sense. So I didn't realize that. Wow. So see again, all the subtle things are are just compound to make this more and more enjoyable. So I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts and popcorn ratings. So Ron, what are yours for Revenge of the Ninja? I have to go with uh, probably, I think I'm hesitant to give out an extra large popcorn 
but at the same time, I feel like this movie might actually warrant it because it was just nonstop entertainment like the entire time. Like my, I watched it with Holly and Holly checked out of it, but, <laughs> but I had a great time. So I'm going to go extra large popcorn. Uh, you see literally every type of ninja weapon that I think ninjas ever used in the real world. Uh, like even down to like the war fans, they've got like the the fighting sticks. You've got uh, throwing stars. You've got darts. You've got blow guns. You've got little stabbing blades. You've got poison. You've got uh, the little strangling wires. You've got all kinds of like crazy stuff, and it's just it's just a lot of fun. I cannot believe I'm about to say what I'm about to say because I thought I would be higher than you in this, but. I, I told myself, I said, how am I going to not give this an extra large popcorn? It's so much better than the last one that I gave a large popcorn to, and I had so much more fun with it. It's got all of that great action and all that authentic stuff that you're talking about. On top of it, it's got just an incredibly well-put-together cast uh, with Shokasugi leading the way. I had so much fun with this movie that I did not expect to have. Like I really didn't go in thinking, uh, you know, what, I don't know what this is going to be like. We'll see how it goes. And I was completely blown away as to how good this movie was. And I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that it was this good. And I, I don't know what is next. I've heard stories about Ninja three, the domination that make me scared, but I'm wondering if this doesn't turn out to be the best one in the series when it's all said and done. I mean, this this is one of the most fun things we've ever reviewed. Now, is it the quality of something like, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey or whatever? No, but if you rate it amongst what it's against, you know, just good 80s action and, you know, schlock, this is so much better than all of that stuff that I, I have to give it uh, an extra large popcorn. It's such a fun movie. Uh, one that I, I you know, ordered the DVD of after it was over because I was like, I must own this. I, I have to have this now. I can't just let this be a one-time thing. I'll, I'll have to show this to other people and, and get more people on board because this is so much fun and it was just a blast. So I, I'm glad we did it. I'll join you in that extra large popcorn as well. Like I say, I have no idea what to expect next time. Don't spoil it for me, but that, this is another sequel and name only coming up, right? Yes, good the, the only returning thing is, is Shokasuge. Okay, so he is coming back next time. Yes. Okay, I cannot wait to see what he's going to be, because I have no idea. But uh, we'll get to that one next in our next chapter of Ninja Vember here, as it is. So it's almost Thanksgiving time. So, folks, we want to say thank you for another great year here on Filmstrip and for your support. Of course, you can always find our podcast at continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play, wherever you find the show. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. <laughs>